Lord, we're grateful to you that you instruct us from your word. And we pray that you would help us today to grow in our Savior and the knowledge of the scriptures. We pray that your Holy Spirit would be with us to give us not only enlightenment as to the truth that we would be faithful to the Christian faith, but the Spirit would be with us also to be good messengers who walk in the truth and display by our own spirit and attitude those things which will bring glory to your name. We ask that you would bless this time of study together in Jesus' name. Amen. For a couple of months now, the session has been talking uh, about having a special Sunday school lesson, and today is the special Sunday school lesson, having to do with publications that come out of our congregation, in particular some of the things that your pastor has been working on. Um, and I would like, because often the people in the congregation, unless you listen to scuttlebutt here or there or private conversations, are not really aware of some of the stuff that's going on in the Christian world theologically and by way of publication, we just thought it was best that you not pick up on these things by word of mouth, but that we say something um, directly about the publications that uh, your elders, uh, your pastor may be involved in. I have uh, two books that have come out in the last six months um, for which I've made um, a major contribution. One of them is God and Politics, subtitled Four Views on the Reformation of Civil Government, and I'm going to talk about that today. And the other is House Divided, which has this colorful cover, subtitled The Breakup of Dispensational Theology. And you may wonder, what are these about? And that's why we're having a Sunday school lesson, what are these about? But in order to tell you very effectively what these books are about, I need to digress. I need to go back a little bit and give you some history. Again, most of you have picked up on this and will probably know this, but uh, the history will be important for you to see where we've come here at the end of the 1980s uh, in terms of debate in the Reformed world over the subjects of these books. Back in the early 1960s, a gentleman by the name of R.J. Rushdoony uh, began publishing uh, not only a monthly newsletter called the Chalcedon Report, but uh, doing a great deal of uh, uh, public speaking. Uh, in fact, he founded the Chalcedon Foundation. He calls it Chalcedon. There are two pronunciations of that ancient church council. Anyway, the Chalcedon Foundation uh, to promote Christian education, the Christian worldview, the application of Christianity to all areas of life, including, not excluding, but including politics, economics, society in general. Um, for those who were unversed in the history of Christian thought, it appeared that, uh, to many anyway, that Mr. Rush Dooney was promoting things that were rather novel, kind of like a 20th century twist on Christianity, a more libertarian variety or something like that. Various things would be said of that nature, but the fact of the matter is, if you go into the Westminster Confession of Faith, and especially the history of Puritan and Reformed theology, uh, the things that were distinctive and what Mr. Rushdoony were saying, apart from modern application, obviously income tax, uh, 
conclusions about the IRS and so forth are not going to be found in the Puritans because they didn't have the IRS. But the principles that were being applied were principles that have been honored in the Reformed world and uh, believed by people for a long time. However, uh, the modern enunciation of those things proved to be controversial. Now, in 19... what was it? 70? No, 1973, I take it back. The Chalcedon Foundation, its uh, teaching staff, was supplemented by uh, Dr. Gary North, um, who had already published uh, a number of things himself and uh, became the journal editor, the editor of uh, Journal Christian Reconstruction. And uh, by yours truly, I was in graduate school at the time and was hired to do writing and speaking by Mr. Rushdoony. Now, what is it that set apart the Chalcedon Foundation as a Christian education organization? I'm going to oversimplify. You know, if I only have 20 minutes to do two whole books in the history of the movement, I have to oversimplify. However, it's, it's close to accurate as an oversimplification that apart from promoting a reformed view of life, which would include such things as the sovereignty of God and salvation, and um, the idea that Christ is the Lord over every area of life, and therefore everything must be transformed to God's glory, all of our labors must be kingdom labors, apart from those things which could be heard in other places, the distinctive thing that was coming out of the Chalcedon Foundation and then more broadly what came to be called the Reconstructionist Movement um, was a view of the whole Bible that it is normative in ethics, meaning even the Old Testament should be studied for ethics and even the Old Testament should be studied for civil ethics. Then when we go back to the law of God, it's not just the law of the New Testament, contrary to dispensationalism, it's the law of the whole Bible, and when we apply the law of God, it must be applied to all areas of life. You cannot quarantine politics or economics. Okay. I later wrote a book in defense of the idea that the whole Bible is our standard of ethics, uh, defense of the idea that every jot and tittle of the Old Testament is normative and must be applied in the way that the Savior says, that uh, until heaven and earth passes away, not one jot or tittle will pass away. And so. Anyone who teaches the breaking of the least commandment will be least in the kingdom of heaven. Unless, of course, the lawgiver tells us that we can suspend or reapply some of those laws. And that book was entitled Theonomy and Christian Ethics. You'll see it from time to time on the literature table here. Uh, Theonomy and Christian Ethics is perhaps the longest and most substantial or systematic defense of that distinctive of the Reconstructionist movement the ethical approach that says we are whole Bible Christians when it comes to ethics. Uh, the book was warmly and enthusiastically received in some circles, but not all. And um, God's given me more of a sense of humor about it now than I had ten years ago when I was suffering a great deal of uh, political opposition because of the publication of that book. In fact, um, my seminary position at Reformed Theological Seminary was finally jeopardized by that, and uh, though the board would not do me the favor of stating that publicly so I could then ask for due process and defend my point of view, I think everyone who was there at the time knows it was because of theonomy that uh, I uh, didn't have my contract renewed. 
So there's some painful things in the history of the Reconstructionist movement like this. At the same time, in certain denominations of Reformed heritage, uh, the Presbyterian Church in America in particular, a lot of commotion was brought about. What about pastors or candidates for the ministry who believe these sorts of things, actually believe the judicial law of Israel is to be applied in its general equity and so forth? Um, and I could probably take an hour or two just talking about all the ins and outs of those ecclesiastical fights, uh, fights within certain foundations, schools, and so forth. Um, and it's not a pleasant thing. You, you all know that I write in the area of Christian apologetics, one of the areas that I specialized in. I did my graduate work in uh, epistemology, theory of knowledge, just for that reason. And um, the toughest battle I have had in, in answering about the truthfulness of Christianity was actually over what I saw among alleged Christian scholars when this kind of controversy would come up and the games that would be played and the backstabbing that would go on. You would ask yourself, and I'm not encouraging you all to get down this path of depression, but you ask yourself, is there truth to the gospel when those who claim to know the gospel act like this? But anyway, that was years ago. I'm healed now. Okay. But the controversy goes on. I didn't give up those convictions just because a lot of people found them controversial. What do you find controversial about going to the Old Testament? Well, there are certain things that are not repeated in the New Testament that seem to people to not be appropriate to the modern world. For instance, the penal sanctions of the Old Testament talk about how criminals should be dealt with. If I were to defend death for murderers, a good portion of the Christian church would go along with that anyway. But when I say, but in principle, if you're going to go to the Old Testament, and you can't prove that from the New, by the way, try it sometime. If you're going to go to the Old Testament to prove death for murderers, you likewise can go to the Old Testament to prove death for kidnappers, rapists, homosexuals, adulterers, witches, and on and on. And I said, in principle, the authority of God's word is such that only the lawgiver can tell us otherwise. Now, this doesn't mean that we need to create a church state. It does not mean that we need to have a theocracy, or better, an ecclesiocracy, where the church rules over the state. It simply is a way of saying that every person, even kings, even senators and presidents, all magistrates, owe their allegiance to Jesus Christ and must obey his word. This is not teaching the law as a way of salvation. No, it's teaching that the law has always been the pattern of sanctification. It shows us the holiness required of God's people. Now, granted, not all magistrates, any more than all school teachers, are genuine Christians. But all school teachers and all magistrates and all plumbers and bakers and doctors and whatever you want to name should be Christians and should be following the law of God. All right. So that point of view um, has been published. In fact, the amazing thing, any of you who have read Theonomy realize it's not, it's not easy reading. It's not the sort of thing you pick up just because you want to work through something real quickly. It's ponderous, um, and, and I'm, this is not false humility. It was not written for a popular audience. It was written for a more or less academic audience. However, the book kept getting reprinted. A book that thick doesn't get reprinted often. So. The enemies of the position did me a great favor. <laughs> they, they really kept interest in this alive. And um, so 
the beginning of the uh, 1980s, well actually at the end of the 1970s, I took a term at Ashland Theological Seminary as a visiting scholar in residence. And then when I was in California, we started Covenant Community Church. And out of this situation, I was going around the country lecturing and uh, writing and doing sorts of things. So the theonomic point of view uh, has still been a live question, and people have been debating it, although I haven't been part of that uh, in an active way to a great degree. Uh, the issue, well, it will not go away. And I want to suggest that it's not because of my brilliance that it will not go away. The issue won't go away because, well, how did it arise? Let me tell you just real briefly. When I was a student at Westmont College, I, I had grown up in an Orthodox Presbyterian church, and and though I wasn't as uh, well-versed as I wish that I were, I was probably more well-versed in Reformed theology than most of the students coming from fundamentalist churches knew about their own theology. And um, in the second year that I was at the school, the school administration made the decision to open the library on Sunday for study. And I thought to myself, well, this is strange because they have a code which tells us we can't drink or smoke or dance. And, well, the Bible commends drinking. I think it commends dancing, whether recreational or not, we can dispute, and so forth. And so they add things which are not in God's Word, and then they take things which are in God's Word away. And that really bothered me. So I began writing. Actually, that was the first issue I wrote against in the student paper, but then it became a number of other things in the theology of the school. And I wrote under the pseudonym Balaam's Ass. Um, <laughs> but the idea that um, just like that dumb donkey, I was going to sit right in the way <laughs> until they relented, you know, with respect to God's word. Well, because I defended the idea of Sabbath keeping, get back on track here, as you can see, many of these uh, fundamentalist dispensationalists would say, well, you can't follow the Old Testament because then you'd have to, or then you'd have to. And I said, yeah, I guess maybe we'd have to do that. So I started studying the whole question of our relationship to the Old Covenant, and I wrote a major senior paper in Greek on Matthew 5, and so one thing becomes another, and eventually the book gets published. But I was in college at the time of the Civil Rights Movement, the war in Vietnam, the sexual revolution. I mean, go on and on. And so, you see, to be an intelligent Christian in that society, and in our society now, too, there are all these things that are coming at us, and we have to say, well, how do we answer these things? How do you develop a Christian position with respect to government, or war, or homosexuality? Okay, and so that forced me into these sorts of things. And that's why the issue will not go away, because our world is in a place where the Christian uh, fabric, the Christian uh, framework for looking at life has so eroded that people are promoting things like equal rights for animals today. I mean, things that are just Looney Tunes when it comes to a Christian worldview, thinking that, you know, animals have equal rights with people and so forth. People will save whales, but they'll kill unborn children. I mean, our society has become ethically stupid. But all these things are coming up, and so the question is going to become, how do we use the Bible in ethics? And that will force you, I think, to a whole Bible ethic eventually. Um, provided that point of view is right, and I think, by God's grace, it is. I still believe that today. So I don't think the issue will go away. Now, this has been one long digression. Let me go back. The Reconstructionist movement represented two distinctives, I said. The one ethical, 
We are whole Bible Christians, including the Old Testament law for politics. The other is eschatological, a view of end times, a view of what God's going to do in history. And real briefly, you probably all aware of this fact, um, the Christian church in the 20th century pretty much divides into, well, there are some who don't believe the Bible anyway, and so they don't have any eschatological position, liberal or neo-orthodox views. But those who take the Bible seriously either believe that Jesus is going to come back and on earth establish a military kingdom from Jerusalem for a thousand years, or that the kingdom of Jesus Christ has no relationship to this earth in that way at all, and that Jesus rules from heaven, and there is no golden age on earth to be expected, or believe that Christ is ruling on earth now through the power of his spirit and word, and that the Great Commission is going to conquer the nations, and that is the way in which Jesus will rule, not by a rod of uh, iron in the sense of steel, but the rod of, uh, that proceeds from his mouth, as Isaiah says, for the crushing of the nations, the preaching of the gospel. Now, those who believe that the gospel is going to be victorious in the world and is going to bring about a better day than we see now, even as it's brought about a better day than was seen way back in the early days of the church, are called post-millennialists. Now, the problem with post-millennialism in terms of um, public relations is that many of the liberal churches of the early 1900s in this country were thought to be post-millennial, too, because they believed in evolution. And along with evolution, that is, that was their view of origins, they believed that man is naturally good and things are getting better and better. And so that was called post-millennialism. And so if you call yourself a post-millennialist today, often a fundamentalist will say, you believe in the social gospel, you believe man is naturally good, or that things just have to evolve better and better, which is not, of course, the view uh, of the Puritans. I mean, what Puritan said that man is basically good and things are just of their own going to get better? No, it's the power of God's spirit through the preaching of the gospel that changes hearts and nurtures people in the faith, and that that will have not only individual effect, I preach today pretty strongly about personal sanctification, but also corporately. If you have a nation full of sanctified people, they're going to have laws that, that are pleasing to God, and they're going to have a society that doesn't indulge in pornography and, and on and on and on. So we're going to see changes of a corporate nature as the kingdom of God comes to stronger and stronger expression. So, or to put it in Jesus' terms, it's like the little mustard seed that grows into a huge tree. And the kingdom uh, right now need not be thought to be the kingdom of God in its uh, final expression. The kingdom's growing. There is a mentality unfortunately, that afflicts every generation of the church that says this must be the last generation before Jesus comes. Well, if this is the last generation before Jesus comes, pretty hard to believe the post-millennial hope. I mean, in our generation, we're going to see nations beat their swords into plowshares and righteousness and the poor being taken care of and the gospel cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. Oh, come on. But what if we say this is not necessarily the last generation? And after all of the times and seasons, we don't know. And for all we know, these may be the days of the early church. We tend to think the days of the early church are back in the hundreds, two hundreds, three hundreds. For all, for all we know, the second um, uh, millennia of uh, Earth's history after the coming of Christ is going to be considered the early days of the church for that generation down the line that enjoys the fruits of gospel prosperity and 
the nations being discipled and so forth. Okay, so we have an optimistic view of the power of the gospel and what Christ is going to do in this world with his kingdom. Now there's a, there's a resistance to these two distinctives, ethical and eschatological. Now that resistance is found within reformed circles, and I think that's really ironic because it's reformed people who have the foundation to develop that point of view and should be committed to that point of view. But that resistance in reform circles um, was supposed to be given expression and quite a debate was supposed to develop at a conference put on at Geneva College two and a half years ago now. And from that conference, the papers of that conference have been published under the title God and Politics. Now the thought of this conference was we'll bring in adherents of four major views within the reformed world on politics and how the Bible relates to politics. And a major position paper will be presented and then a respondent from each of the other three positions will respond to that paper. So there was, what does that come out to, 16 different people participating, major papers, four of them, and then three people from each of the other schools of thought. Um, and I'm doing a little bit of psychologizing here, and forgive me if I'm wrong, but I felt at the time that this was set up to uh, try to be a public uh, destruction of theonomy. It was an attempt to bring people together so that people could say, see, well, there's more than theonomy out there in terms of the reform point of view. I went anyway because, fool that I am, I'm willing to go to anybody's debate because I think the truth will out. And so I said, that's all right, I'll go and I'll debate these people even if they do want three people ganged up on me. Well, I went there and a funny thing happened on the way. I found out even before the morning that I spoke that, um, well, the other positions were named Principled Pluralism, I'll come back to that, Christian America, terrible title, the idea that America should be a Christian nation, and then National Confessionalism, which goes way back in uh, Western Pennsylvania history to um, uh, a group of Reformed people, Covenanters, who believe that the nation should, in its constitution, acknowledge Jesus Christ as the King of Kings, and therefore, you know, live in, in, in light of that. And they had certain social applications then that are kind of embarrassing today. They were abolitionists and so forth. Uh, they were um, teetotalers. They believed that there should be laws against drinking and so forth. So they may not have understood well the application, but they had the principle right that Jesus is the King even of this nation. Well, when I got to this conference, I found out that all of the advocates of the position called Christian America had read Theonomy, and they said, we don't disagree with that, that's right. And the principled pluralist had a couple of questions they wanted to ask. They were a little nervous about things because they, they didn't tend to be post-millennial in their eschatology. But in terms of the position about God and politics, they said, well, that sounds right, too. We believe in going to the Old Testament and so forth. So by the end of the conference, what we had really was two positions, theonomy, principled, excuse me, theonomy, national confession, and Christian America, almost saying the same thing in principled pluralism over here. And those of you who have read the book, you probably noticed in my first response to the respondents, I point that out. I said, the interesting thing to me is that this conference has shown that theonomy is not the odd man out in the Reformed world. Principled pluralism is the odd man out. And principle pluralism says, 
we can't follow the law of God in politics or any distinctive Christian point of view because we have to honor all religious commitments. Uh, and that's what Jesus would have us to do. It's principled because Jesus wants us to say in terms of the political order, every religious point of view has equal standing, should be equally protected. Yeah, I see some of you scowling or shaking your heads. You could refute that sort of thing. You didn't need a PhD to go to this conference to do that. Um, I asked the obvious question. I said, should adherents of satanic cults that in involve uh, child sacrifice or uh, adultery, should they be equally honored? And the respondent who, uh, excuse me, the main presenter there was Gordon Spikeman, professor of systematic theology at Calvin. He dismissed the question as, oh, well, there's always going to be a lunatic fringe. I said, hey, I'm from California. Don't dismiss that as the lunatic fringe. <laughs> but you see, in terms of debate and theological, philosophical um, a dialogue, that's not, a, that's not an adequate answer because hypothetically, even if there were none of these people, if there were, would your position say this about them and so forth? So we had an interesting um, debate there, but the principled pluralists are found especially among um, Anabaptists, although many Anabaptists renounce government altogether. Those who are involved believe the government should honor all religious commitments, and many, um, I hate to say this, in the Christian Reformed Church or those who teach in the Christian Reformed Church are uh, followers of this point of view. Now, if you're interested in that debate then, the debate with theonomy among Reformed theologians, then you might pick up God and Politics, which we conveniently have on the back table for you, and I encourage you to read through it. Some of you may want the book, I hate to promote my own stuff, but I guess you put me up here, that's what ends up happening. Um, you may want the book simply for the, um, the summary of the theonomic position, because many of you won't read 600 and whatever pages are in theonomy, but in 30 pages or so, you can get it all. In fact, I kind of like this better than the book, but don't tell anybody that. Gives me the opportunity to respond to, you know, 15 years of criticism, so I kind of, now when I say something, I know where the missiles are going to start coming in from, and so I start setting it up right. Now, that's shameful, I think, that the Reformed world should not have come to those positions. And I hope maybe by the end of the 20th century, Reformed Christianity will be more, in terms of its history, theonomic and postmillennial. But what does not surprise me is this book here, which is not on our back table because we don't promote it, Dominion Theology, Blessing or Curse. This book was written to be the dispensational refutation of both prongs of Reconstructionism, the ethical and the eschatological. And we have a, a seminary professor from Dallas Seminary, as well as a, a Baptist uh, dispensational pastor who co-authored this book, and this uh, was promoted and is being promoted as the definitive refutation. If it is, I'm feeling really good because then our job's not going to be as hard as I thought because you know, I know that it, I don't mean this to appear by my lightheartedness to be arrogant, but if this is the best dispensationalism can do, it's sad. But now why would dispensationalists be especially upset with Reconstructionism? Well, think about it. Dispensationalist says we live under grace, not law, meaning we don't go back to the Mosaic Covenant for anything. 
And so the whole ethical point of view of Reconstructionism stands diametrically against dispensationalism. Moreover, dispensationalists believe that Jesus is going to come to earth and set up a military kingdom. You know, the Battle of Armageddon and all that, we're going to be raptured beforehand. And in terms of that, since they don't believe in an ethical program like the Old Testament had, and since they don't have the hope that the gospel is going to conquer the world, they think it's um, foolish to get involved in social things. Christianity has to do with uh, matters of going to heaven, prayer, Bible reading, going to church. And Christians don't have anything distinctively to save the world, politics, economics, schooling, uh, the arts, uh, the sciences, what have you. Dispensationalists are against that kind of involvement. So here's Reconstructionism saying, let's get involved in the world because Jesus is sovereign Lord over every area of life. And we ought to take the whole Bible and apply it, when properly interpreted, apply the whole Bible to all of life. And we have confidence that God will bless the preaching of the gospel and the kingdom of Jesus Christ will come to expression. And Christianity is the winning side in history, not the losing side in history. Now dispensationalists say, oh, you're wrong all the way along. You don't go to the Old Testament. You don't try to change the world. And no, we aren't going to win in history. We're going to be raptured because things get so bad. And then Jesus will come back and will have to beat into the dirt all of his enemies. And then finally the kingdom of God will come to expression in the world. Now, I realize they don't like the beat into the dirt stuff, but that's important for you to see. That's one of the points I make in the book, is that often dispensationalists say, my position is so harsh. Why? Well, because I believe a rapist ought to be executed, and they think that's harsh. I don't. I think that's godly. Kidnappers, murderers, homosexuals, what have you. And so they say, well, you want to go to those harsh Old Testament penalties. But I ask you, which is the more harsh position? Our view says people will come to that view through the persuasion of the gospel, through preaching, through Christian nurture, and so forth. They believe that people will submit to Jesus Christ because he's going to have the tanks and the bazookas and force them to do so. And if they don't, they'll be blasted to eternity. Now, that language is from dispensational preaching. You will hear that. The more sophisticated will not tell you that, but they will say, yes, it's a military kingdom and people will not submit except by force. Well, so you see, I don't believe our position's the harsh one. I think theirs is. But dispensationalists have been saying for over 10 years that this is a deviant theology. It's unorthodox. And in fact, some popular dispensational writers have uh, committed Reconstructionism to the category of a cult. It's very strong language. And, I, and I'm humorous about it because I think their position is so ridiculous. But when all is said and done, that's hurtful language, too. I love Jesus Christ, and maybe I'm wrong about his word, but I'm not a follower of a cult, and I don't believe that uh, this is a deviant theology. It has great credentials through the history of the Christian church. Anyway, so this book, entitled Dominion Theology, was written by House and Ice to refute Reconstructionism, its ethical and its eschatological features. Uh, now, a book has been published in answer to this entitled House Divided the breakup of dispensational theology. Um, when I was a teacher at Reformed Seminary, I had a student, one of my better students, um, who is now uh, a doctor, Dr. Ken Gentry. And uh, Ken came to us from a dispensational seminary. 
he had come to the Reformed faith and just really couldn't take the Arminianism there and came down to Reformed seminary to study. He hadn't worked out all these things about ethics and eschatology. <clears throat> well, he signed up for my eschatology course at the seminary. And um, he says in the introduction here, I didn't know this, by the way, until he wrote this, and I, I read this. I wasn't aware of this history. He said that he came into the course, and when he heard that I was going, I was going to present all the positions and analyze them and defend postmillennialism, he said he really thought this guy was out on the far edges defending postmillennialism. And then later he found out I was going to defend a pre-AD 70 date for the writing of the book of Revelation which means the book of Revelation is for the most part dealing with the fall of Jerusalem and the fall of the Roman Empire rather than all these things down at the end of history. And when he heard that, he said, oh, this guy's really flipped out. By the time he finished the course, he was convinced of both, and he went on to do his doctoral work in that area. And so now Ken Gentry has joined with me in writing a book in answer to House and Ice in which he deals with the eschatological question of uh, post-millennialism and how to interpret Revelation and so forth, and I deal with the ethical question of uh, whether we can dismiss the Old Testament law and so forth. Um, time is short, and so let me kind of bring this to a head. This, um, this book will be a nice summary of Reconstructionism in a sense, but in another sense it isn't, because there's kind of a qualification on everything I've been saying. You know, there's development within every school of thought, and there's been developments within Reconstructionist conviction over the last 10 years as well. And the fact of the matter is, many of the things that people formerly known as Reconstructionists, many of the things they are saying, I don't agree with. In fact, I'm embarrassed by. Some of the hermeneutical approaches being taken by people, for instance, uh, interpretive maximalism, as they call it, uh, I don't agree with. In fact, I've written reviews critical of it. Many of the applications by people who I think are really on kind of a fringe, uh, uh, many of the applications they make I don't agree with. And so it's hard when someone says, well, are you a Reconstructionist? I usually say, if you mean the foundational convictions about whole Bible applied to all of life and the gospel of Jesus Christ transforming the world, yes, I am. If you mean, do I agree with what Gary North said in this sentence right here? Not necessarily. Okay, so this book is a defense not of Reconstructionist strange applications. This is a defense of the foundational eschatology and ethic that we take. For that reason, I think it would be good for you to read. However, last thing, a good portion of this book, a good portion, of, maybe a third of this book, it's a thick book, is given over to correcting the false portrayals and misrepresentations that are found in this one. Now, that's good in one sense, because you need to hear what people mistakenly... There are a lot of people who will not read, and yet they still will condemn. There's a man back in 1980 at the 50th, uh, or 81, I guess, at the 50th anniversary of Westminster Seminary, who um, was listening to lectures and was well-known in reform circles for being somebody that condemned the theonomic point of view. Dr. Joseph Kikasola who was speaking in defense of theonomy at that conference, had recently come over to that view, um, and was very, uh, well, maybe naive to a fault, very gentle, very uh, unassuming, and very openly went to this man and said, I really want you to share with me your criticism of this position because I'm looking at this very seriously, and it seems to me that it's right. And the man said, well, I'll tell you this, I've not read the book, but I know it's wrong. 
Now that may be one of the more arrogant and open, but you need to understand that you're going to find in the Christian world this is shot through and through. People will not read, but they'll pick up, you know, uh, rumors and little bits and pieces of what things are, and then they'll say, well, we know that's wrong. That's cultic or something. Or they've heard their favorite radio preacher condemn Reconstructionism because it X, Y, Z. And so much of what we had to do in this book is just say, hey, it's not true. We don't believe those things. And now, after 10 years, we're tired of telling you we don't believe them. The book does get kind of pushy on this. I'm one of the pushy ones when I say it's about time that the requirements of God's law are honored about interpersonal integrity. Don't represent publicly me as saying things that I don't say. Take what I say, tear it up, do your best, but don't set up a straw man and say that's Dr. Bonson and then knock him down. So um, you'll get a defense of the fundamentals, but you'll also run into a whole lot of the common misconceptions and misrepresentations, irresponsible misrepresentations of the position. That, or, that is it for the two books that I would encourage you to pick up and read. And if there's enough interest, uh, maybe we'll either have a class in them sometime. I've hesitated to do that. Or maybe have an open forum where we could discuss things. And I know you all have a roast in the oven burning at home. So I'm going to keep this real, real short. Two, maybe three questions, and then we're going to stop. Kent? I, I told you that 10 years ago I had to come to peace with this political situation. Yeah, there are some people who will publish, I mean, will um, sell the one book, but will not sell the other. By the way, and I, and I would say to any of those reformed bookstores that are carrying House Divided, I'd be happy to have them carry this one too and encourage people to buy both, read them both. Because, I, and this is not arrogance, it's just the confidence of the gospel. I firmly believe that if you read both these books, you'll know who's right. I don't think that this book has anything to threaten us. But it's wrong, obviously, for them not to be willing to hear the other side. But it's going to happen, Kent. I don't know what else I can tell you. It's going to happen. Bob? Originally, um, this is something that came up in dealing with Gary North as a publisher, and I don't want to go into it publicly, but originally the, the third part was going to be all the scholarly errors on both the ethical and eschatological. Then when I got to writing, it just turned out it was easier for me to incorporate chapters in my section dealing with that as building up to my refutation of what substance they did have. And Ken redid his section for that, but it turned out Gary had already typeset his section. And so to save money, they left it that way. So it's not terribly inelegant, but uh, part three is actually Ken's section dealing with scholarly errors. Mine's incorporated in chapters in my section. Any other questions? Any comments? I've covered a lot of stuff. I'm, I wouldn't blame you if you said, what's this all about? Nothing? OK, well, then let's close with a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you that we have your word, and we pray you would make us more diligent students of it. We pray that you would help us when it comes to theological controversy to remember that our supreme authority, our final allegiance, is to what you have to say in the scriptures. 
We ask that you would make us faithful as teachers. I pray, Father, that the publication of these books would glorify you and that uh, they would promote the purposes of truth and that the kingdom of Jesus Christ would be more clearly understood and would become more powerfully expressed in this world because of them. We ask that you would grant to us humility, that you would grant to us a Berean spirit to search the scriptures to see if these things are so. And we ask that as well for our Christian brothers and sisters, whether they are dispensationalists or in the Reformed world, that the same spirit of Christ, the same humility, and the same Berean spirit would be there. And that uh, because your scripture is unchanging and the truth of God cannot be assailed, we take confidence, Lord, that you will see to it that the truth is vindicated and that your people would be united, not by shoving issues under the carpet and ignoring them, but united around the truth that is found in your word. Sanctify us, we pray. Sanctify us by your word, for your word is truth. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.